0: are listening to Resurrection Indiana. To find out more about our meeting times and location, check us out on Facebook or Instagram or visit our website at resurrectionindiana.org. A few years ago, a family was vacationing at a beach in Brazil when a thunderstorm began to roll in. As the clouds gathered, the mother ran into the ocean to get her 11-year-old son out of the water. And as she stepped into the waves, she was struck and killed by a single bolt of lightning in front of both her son and her husband. Bolt of lightning, of course, is incredibly powerful and dangerous. It can carry up to 1 million volts of electricity. And yet at the same time, as dangerous as electricity can be, we generate huge amounts of it for everyday use. We rely on it probably more than any other type of energy as we go about day to day life. The difference is in how it's used and whether we understand how it works and even whether we have a healthy fear of its power. God's people have received the Ten Commandments. And in the process, as they have heard these words, they have seen the glory and the power of God. And we come to the end of this event, and we see the response of the people. They've seen who God is, and they've seen themselves in that light. Consequently, they want no part of being in God's presence. They are terrified. Mm And what we see is not just their response, we also see what ours ought to be also. The truth is, if we see ourselves in the light of who God is, if we see ourselves in the light of who God is, we ought to fear him. That's actually a good thing. We want to talk about what that looks like. Obviously, what, what exactly is fear of God? The fact that it confronts us with our own need, it shows us who we are, but also that that fear commands us even to obedience, to live in the light of live in the light of who God is. The first thing that that fear does is it actually condemns us before God. What's happening with Israel here is that they are gathered at the base of Mount Sinai for the giving of the law. And when they gather, there are precautions that are put in place. God would descend down on the mountain in the sight of the people, and there was a boundary set up. The people were warned that anyone who attempts to go up to the mountain or even to touch the base of it would be put to death. And when God appears, we are told in chapter 19 that the mountain was wrapped in smoke because... The Lord had descended upon it in fire. The mountain trembled like an earthquake. There was the sound of a trumpet. And when Moses spoke, we are told that God answered him in thunder. All of that power was displayed. And it continued as God himself spoke the Ten Commandments to the people. Now, the result... If you've read all that far, if you had read that far, you come to the passage that we read today, should be pretty predictable. People were terrified. And they were actually right to be afraid. God's presence is a terrifying thing to face. We see repeatedly throughout the Bible the terror of people who find themselves in God's presence. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I have seen the Lord. And the implication, he says, as he finds himself in God's presence, is that he assumes that he's going to die, that this is it, because nobody sees God. In Luke's gospel, the apostle Peter says to Jesus, Depart from me, for I am a (laughs) sinful man. And there is this recognition throughout of God's people that they are sinful people, that they do not deserve to be in God's presence. In fact, that they can't be in God's presence. God is an infinite being, and in the presence of finite people, he can't help but be frightened. In all cases where God is recorded as speaking audibly the sound is described as deafeningly loud, that the people can't stand it. God's presence is meant to demonstrate his power and his majesty, and of course that's exactly what it does. The Puritan Matthew Henry puts it this way about this passage. He says, they must have had stupid hearts indeed if this had not affected them. It's not just God's majesty, it's also his Judgment, the threat of his judgment, God lays out his standard for his people in the Ten Commandments. What does it look like to live in the light of who God is, to be obedient to him? Of course, what we see in those Ten Commandments, and hopefully what we've seen in this series as we've we've looked through it, is that God demands nothing less than absolute, total allegiance to him in every area of your life. Keep in mind that these, this law, these commandments have been given to a people who have been complaining regularly since they left Egypt. People who will continue to have trouble with faithfulness. And maybe that's why they're afraid. They recognize that. They have been saved out of slavery in Egypt. They've been saved by a God who now owns them. I am your God. I am the one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I am your God, and you are my people. <coughs> now, Of course, very often we have a lack of that today, I and mean, there's all sorts of reasons for that. We don't see ourselves, of course, as God's people in that way. This group of people who were brought out of, literally out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, they're in the wilderness, and they're following God where he leads them. God very often, for most of us today, seems very remote. And consequently, we have conceptions of God in different ways, and bumper stickers that say things like, God is my co-pilot, as though we're sort of partnering together to live a good life. All the different ways in which we sort of treat God lightly. Sometimes that comes out in the way that our conception of God rarely contradicts what we want him to be. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, I just don't think God is like that. Here's the thing. If you have a God who can never say no to you, you may be out of question whether he is really God or whether you are simply believing in a God of your own making. And even in the church, even among God's people today, we often don't have a proper reverence and fear of God, that we've deluded his holiness, that we've minimized his requirements. <laughs> we believe in grace. Sometimes we use it as an excuse to disregard God whenever we feel like it. You know, we look at passages like this and we say things like, well, God isn't like that anymore. Very often we believe, and I hear this regularly, that, you know, the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and the God of the New Testament is a God of grace or that God is a God of love. And if we would just love more, we would be more like what God wants us to be. wholly apart from what God himself has revealed about himself. We need to recover an understanding of who God is and the fact that he is a God to be feared. We also need to recover the idea of that fear as a good thing rather than a negative one. One of the things that fear does, that fear of God, is that it confronts us confronts us. Confronts us with the need for a mediator. Moses is the one who is standing between the people and God. He's the one who goes up on the mountain. He comes back and brings them God's word. The presence of God with his people, of course, here in this passage, convinces them that they don't want to be in his presence. And so they ask Moses to speak instead of God. They they actually tell him, you speak to us, but don't let God come down here again. What they want is a mediator, someone who will stand between them and God, someone who will go to God on their behalf, someone who will speak to God on their behalf. And on the face of it, it maybe seems like they're wrong to ask for that. Like they don't want to be in God's presence, it's too much for them, and so they want Moses to do it for them. That God has reached down to them and that they're rejecting him. They're actually right to ask for a mediator. They need one. They are right to be afraid of God's presence. Because in God's presence, they see the truth about themselves, that they are far, far from measuring up, from meeting the standard, the commandments that he's laid out. And so they need someone to stand between them and God. They need somebody to bridge the distance between heaven and earth, between God's holiness and their sinfulness. And that's what Moses does. The only catch is that Moses is just like them, exactly like them. He's a man like them. He's been appointed as the leader of God's people. He's been appointed as their mediator, the one who goes up and speaks with God and and then comes back to the people. But he only goes so far. Moses enters into God's presence, but even he doesn't see God. Even Moses doesn't have full access to God. And in fact, Moses, like the people, also falls short. And as a result, now this happens later in Exodus and later through that story of them wandering in the wilderness before they go into the promised land. But by the time it's all done, Moses is not allowed to enter the Promised Land. As great as Moses is, the people need somebody greater. So Moses acts as a mediator between God and the people, but there is still a need for priests, for sacrifices, ultimately for the temple where God dwells where he can be separate from his people and yet with them. Moses stands between, but he can't bring them together. And that's a job for someone greater. Moses shows the people what they need, but Moses can't actually provide it. But he does point to it. There's a greater Moses, and we see that in the person of Jesus. Part of the way we see that in the Ten Commandments is when we see the words of Jesus and his teaching in the New Testament. That's one of the reasons that we've, as we've played out the Ten Commandments, and you know, what do all these things mean? Jesus is one, of, is one of the ways that we know that. That we get things like, you shall not kill, that short commandment, and yet Jesus comes along and says, I say to you, if, have you ever been angry with your brother? That's part of that commandment, too. Jesus expands those things, but Jesus meets that standard. Moses, does, or Moses Jesus doesn't just bridge the gap between God and the people. He actually eliminates it. And Moses can't do that. That chasm between God and man exists, of course, because God is holy and we're not. And our unholiness, our failure to keep God's law, our failure to live up to his standards, that's the cause of our separation. And Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the one that we need, the one that Moses points to, because Moses stood under the penalty of the law, just like the rest of the people, but Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't lower the standard down to where we can meet it. He actually raises it. You know, that's that Sermon on the Mount again. Most of us, hopefully, can say, yeah, I've never killed anyone. And yet Jesus comes along and says, but have you ever been angry with someone? And all of a sudden, none of us keep that commandment. But Jesus does, and he has. Jesus is the one who's kept the law perfectly, and because of that, he not only is able to enter into God's presence, but he can take you with him. He's a mediator who goes not only to God himself, but he opens the way for us to go there too. That's the only way that you get there. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg once said, I am telling you if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. The only way you can say something like that is if you have no conception of who God is. And you can forget about the Christian God for a second and the God of the Bible. If you believe in a God who is powerful enough to create the world and everything in it, You should maybe be a little more circumspect about your ability to earn his acceptance. (laughs) When we come to the God of the Bible, what we need is actually a good defense attorney. One of my close friends works as a county prosecutor in St. Louis and had a conversation with him one time and he said, yeah, he doesn't tell people, I mean, of course he's an attorney, he's a lawyer. He doesn't like to tell people that he's a lawyer. He tells people that he is a prosecutor. Which he is, that's his job. The reason, of course, is that the term lawyer very often implies a lot of negative connotations. The idea that a lawyer gets an acquittal for guilty people, either through deceit or finding a loophole in the law, something along those lines. Sometimes lawyers aren't particularly well respected. Consequently, my friend tells people, no, I'm a prosecutor. But when Jesus acts as an attorney for us, when Jesus makes his defense, he's not deceitful, he's not finding loopholes, he's not minimizing the standard, he's not finding a way to get you off the hook, he's not making excuses. There are no extenuating circumstances. What Jesus does is he pays the penalty the price of our crimes for us. Not only does he mediate for us as an attorney does with God the judge, but he pays any required penalty himself. And so when Jesus asks for us to be set free, he's not begging for forgiveness, he's not making excuses. Jesus is actually demanding justice. When he goes before God, and if your hope is in him, and Jesus goes before God, and he is not begging, well, just just let him off. I know he screwed up again. Rather, Jesus is saying, I already paid that penalty. I already died on the cross. You can't mete out your punishment again for the same crime. It's already been paid. But nobody goes directly to God. Nobody goes straight in. We might take him lightly, but we'll face his presence. And when we do, we'll find that we can't stand. Israel is right. God's people, when, after these Ten Commandments are given, when they say, don't let God speak directly to us lest we die. If you think that you can go directly to God, you are terribly mistaken. And in fact, deluded about the reality of God's holiness and your unholiness. But if Jesus stands in your place, if Jesus is your mediator, there should still be a fear of God. But it's a fear that commands us to obedience. You become free of God's law, free from the penalty of that law, free from the burden of living up to that law. And yet, that law still has a primary place in your life. And it has that in a couple of different ways. One is that that law convicts us. That's really what we're seeing in this passage. We can know God by knowing his character and his attributes, but we also know God by what he requires of us, his standard, And of course, his standard is that we keep his law and that we do so absolutely perfectly. But we've also seen that we don't keep it. And one of the functions of the law is to convict us of sin and to remind us and show us that we need a savior. We need a mediator. A person will not seek help unless and until they see that they have a problem. And the law shows us that we have a problem. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in his letter to the Romans, specifically in chapter 7. He talks, about, um, he talks about seeing that law and becoming convinced of his sin. But we also have Jesus himself who says, nobody goes to a doctor who is healthy. You don't show up at the doctor's office and say, oh, here I am, I feel good. You go to the doctor when you feel sick. You go to the doctor when you need help. And Jesus describes himself as the great physician. So the law convicts us and shows us our need. But again, if your hope is in Jesus, the law guides us. When it's done its work of driving you to the Savior, to trust in Jesus... Instead of trusting in yourself, you come back to the law again, this time not to be condemned, but to be commanded. And you see what the law requires, and you see that you're no longer condemned, and consequently you are free to work at obedience to the law without fear of judgment. In other words, this is not a command that condemns, but this is a command that shows us this is what it looks like to live in God's household This is what he intends for your good. If your hope is in Jesus, you don't have any fear of being separated from him. And yet you should still fear him. Here's what I mean. When I was in junior high, I think, I got a haircut, and the stylist cut my hair in such a way that I could use gel and I could wear it spiked straight up. This was, this was the 1980s, by the way. And when I came home, my dad didn't like it, and he didn't say anything about it. He just kind of stopped talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, he wasn't going to disown me or kick me out of the house, but for the next few days, he was really uncomfortable to be at home. And finally, after a few days went by, I couldn't stand it anymore. And I stopped spiking my hair up like that. And as soon as I did that, everything went back to normal. Dad started talking to me again. Mm -hmm. Now, there wasn't any punishment, but knowing that he was unhappy with me was enough to get me to change. Now, whether whether my dad was right or wrong in his response about my hair is not the point. My point is about a fear that is healthy and right. I never doubted that my dad loved me. And consequently, I cared what he thought. As I got further into high school, I was never the kind of kid who got into a lot of trouble. There were probably a lot of reasons for that, but I know one reason was that even at times where I didn't have any fear of God, where I didn't care what God thought, I sure cared what Dad thought. If I didn't have a healthy fear of God, I always had a healthy fear of Dad. And it made a difference. If you're a Christian, you put your hope in Jesus, and yet you live your life unconcerned about pleasing your Heavenly Father, then you maybe don't have a proper understanding of who God is. And if you think that because you're saved by grace that God's law no longer matters, you've made the law of God meaningless. You've made it not about what he's done for you, but about using him to get what you want. In the same way that a child who is loved unconditionally and yet they are still expected to follow their parents' instruction. You are loved unconditionally by the grace of Jesus, and yet you are still expected in trust, in reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit, to follow God's law. And when you do, you find that it's not a burden, but a freedom. You know, do you have a relationship with God? A relationship with God that is through and because of Jesus? And consequently, as you live your life, do you care what he thinks? That this God who is all-powerful, who created the world and everything in it, who created you, and he loves you, and he gave his son for you. When was the last time that you did something or didn't do something just because of your love for god and who he is if we see ourselves in the light of who god is we will fear him it's a good thing and we can fear him You can fear God because you are under his judgment and you stand condemned, or you can fear him because Jesus is your mediator. And consequently, God is a good father. The law is there whether you like it or not. You can be crushed by the law, or you can be free to obey it. An old Puritan poem goes like this. It says, run, John, run, the law commands. But it gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings.